you know, when I talk to people about raising capital, you know, if, if there's a great deal out there, the money you'll find the money. A lot of times people say, I can't find the money. I can't find the money. If you have a good enough deal, you'll find the money. Do you want to take your creative real estate to the next level? I recently teamed up with some high-level syndicators to create the first true apartment network right here in Denver. Denver Apartment Network is a group of investors focused on achieving passive income through a creative strategy called syndications. To register for the next event for free, you'll find the link in today's show notes. I'll see you there. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome to the Creative Real Estate Podcast from realbluespruce.com. I am DJ Scruggs, and I am flying solo today without my partner, Adam Adams. He is, uh, we double booked. He's on another podcast right now, so maybe if you, if you uh, search iTunes, you can find him. But I'm really glad uh, for the guest we're having today because he has a tech background like myself. And so I just want to welcome Victor Manesh. Great to be here. Thanks, Victor. So we're going to get into some of the creative real estate stuff you've done in a moment, but why don't you give us a quick background on just your whole background and, and how you got into real estate? Yeah, my path into real estate is not your typical career path. Uh, I started out my career as an electrical engineer uh, designing microprocessors originally in the telecom space. Uh, so if you've, if you've uh, made a phone call any time after 1991 for about the next decade, Roughly half the phone calls in North America were processed by a, a chip that I designed. Wow. And uh, since then, went on to do a bunch of different things in technology, uh, data cards for, um, for mobile phones and um, for uh, notebook PCs and all kinds of different embedded applications. I ran a microprocessor development business um, with a company out of uh, Silicon Valley. I did a lot of mergers and acquisitions work. And raised a lot of capital in my technology days. And so it was really then that I learned some of the secrets and some of the, let's say, the rules for, for raising money. And then uh, when I got into the world of real estate development, real estate investing, recognized that I had this skill set that at first I wasn't using. And then decided, oh, yeah, Victor, you know how to raise money. Uh, you need to reapply that here because you you've now run out of money, as most <laughs> people do. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, so, so I had that conversation with myself and, you know, reenacted that skill set that I had developed in the tech industry. And so uh, tell us about that, that, that first venture into real estate. What were you doing? Were you fixing and flipping, buying rentals? I take a business approach to virtually everything, uh, which means it's got to follow the laws of supply and demand. And I live in Ottawa, Canada, the nation's capital. There's a unique submarket here where there's a lot of parliamentary staff, embassy staff, oh, right. uh, military officers that are here on a medium-term basis. So your typical 12-month unfurnished lease is useless to them. And a nightly Airbnb-type product offering isn't what they need either. Uh, you know, they have a housing allowance, typically around 1800 bucks a month. And so I knew what the answer was. The answer was $1,800. Right. What, <laughs> what could I offer that would fit within that? Uh, that would be, you know, essentially an executive suite type rental, but on a medium term basis. So that's where I started. And I started buying one bedroom condominiums within walking distance of parliament uh, and servicing that market, build a little portfolio that way. And that's how I got started in real estate, just simply servicing that need. Uh, you know, I didn't have to spend a lot of money on advertising um, and uh, I, I was always full. 
So it was a good business. Uh, it wasn't a great business, but it was a good business and it was hard to make mistakes. So it was a good place to start. And when did you start doing this? I started that in 2006. Okay, great. And when did you, when did you start to transit? I guess, when did you have this conversation with yourself about the money and, and what kind of motivated that? What was, were you working on a transaction or, or what happened? Well, the first few projects that I did uh, were mostly local in my market. I started to do some work uh, in Arizona, uh, acquired some multi-unit property uh, outside of Phoenix, uh, and ran out of cash. And then uh, that was around 2010, 2011. And um, th at that point, I said, oh, yeah, I got to <laughs> go find some other money. So I started doing a few joint ventures and then really started to re-implement re uh, the skill that I had developed previously. Um, you know, I, I was working full time in the tech industry. I had a VP role uh, in a in a semiconductor company, and uh, what I discovered was that the days of building wealth and technology, you know, unless you have the depth of pockets of an Intel or a Samsung or someone like that, uh, the days of building wealth in real uh, or in tech are really kind of over. Um, unless you know, unless you win the lottery, and that right. and that's hard to be sustainable. You know, um, so. So at that point, I made the decision to quit my, my job and move full-time into the world of real estate investing. Um, and uh, it was a, a big shift, you know, going from making, you know, a, a very solid income uh, to zero, uh, hoping to replace that within a relatively short time period out of real estate. Yeah. And so was it um, – Did you was there like a big deal in the offing? Like were you buying a large multifamily or something like that? I started out, um, th th my next venture was into the Chicago market. I got into some partnerships uh, in, in the Chicago market, um, essentially doing fix and flip in, in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, you could buy things for well below construction cost. Uh, the retrospective on that was we ended up uh, partnering with someone who was a crook. And you know, <laughs> I have to say that every successful person I've met has some story in their history of a partnership gone bad and and I've got mine too and so that was that <laughs> took place in the Chicago market and it's funny because uh, I have my own crook story in Chicago I uh, have you? I lived there for a long time went to school there and lived there for a while and I worked with a guy who um, he would do SBA loans he, he right. would package SBA loans and he he, he wasn't, I wouldn't say a hundred percent con artist. He was about 60%. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, a learning experience to be sure. But what I did learn from that, I actually learned quite a bit about accounting, you know, how to read financials and things like that. So on the whole, I came out of it. Okay. But yeah, there, there definitely are some crooks out there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, many different ways, many different shell games that crooks can use. And, you know, if your listeners, are you know perking up your ears a little bit? One of the things definitely to watch out for is um, if you have a contractor, and that contractor may be independent, they may be a partner. If they are spending money out of their own account and then coming to you demanding reimbursement, those expenses need to be pre-approved. Number one, and number two, there needs to be complete transparency in the financials. Mm -hmm. um, and and if you don't have that, chances are I'm not saying it is, but chances are there's something there that's not quite above board. Uh, right. And that, certainly that's what we experienced. Yeah. So I, I have a just sort of a side question to uh, you yep. being Canadian, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of investing in the U.S. Are there any special barriers to that or special issues that 
uh, both from uh, the Canadian side, if you're interested in investing, and both as well as on our side, if I wanted to find a Canadian investor. Are there anything we should be aware of? There's a myriad of issues. There's tax issues. There's uh, foreign exchange. Uh, you know, you're you're dealing with now a, a couple of layers. You've got real estate markets that can go up and down in price. You've got currency that can go up and down in price. So you've got an extra layer here where you could potentially experience a foreign exchange gain or a foreign exchange loss. And we've experienced both. Um, when you're doing business internationally, whether it's between Canada and the States or, you know, any two countries, uh, there are cross-border tax issues. There are non-resident withholding taxes often. And um, uh, if there's a tax treaty, as there is between Canada and the U.S., then uh, those non-resident withholding taxes get treated as a tax credit uh, from which you can deduct against your, in my case, my Canadian tax. And um, uh, so uh, in, in that scenario, I'm not subject to double taxation. But if you do it wrong, you could be taxed twice on the same money. Uh, and there's certainly lots of examples of people who didn't get the right tax advice and, uh, you know, set up the wrong entity structure and got taxed twice on the same money. Yeah, so I, I guess the advice would be if you're talking to a Canadian investor, make sure they're talking to an accountant or tax lawyer who understands those issues. Correct, correct. And then, of course, you know, if you're raising money, there's all the securities laws and you got to figure out which securities um, – uh, Law takes takes precedence, whether it's the SEC or a state or, you know, maybe a provincial securities commission. If you're raising money um, internationally, there there's a little bit of complexity there. But that, too, can be done, you know, can be navigated with a bit of good advice. Terrific. So let's um, shift gears for a moment and talk about creative strategies. In the pre-interview, you mentioned that you had done some creative deals. So could you give us uh, an example or two of the kinds of deals you've done? Absolutely. Um, you know, perhaps, and, you know, here's the thing. It, if I give an, ex I'll give an example that's a, that's a home run, literally, mm -hmm. but it's difficult to recreate. And, and while it will be inspirational, um, you know, your the listeners will go, wow, I'll also give you another example that's a little bit more accessible. Okay. Um, so um, I have a partner in Philadelphia. We've done a bunch of projects together. And one of the businesses that he has is he also has a side business that buys and sells uh, cellular towers. Um, and a tower leases space to the carriers, maybe uh, Sprint or Verizon or AT&T, and uh, uh, they get revenue from the carrier for having their antennas on the tower. Uh, so this is basically an income property. And so he has this business that buys and sells cell towers. And we ended up discovering that there was an asset for sale in uh, about an hour outside New York City, uh, and it was actually listed on the MLS. It was listed on LoopNet, uh, hmm. and it was a, a minor league baseball stadium. And the only reason we found out about it is because it had a cell tower on it with revenue from Sprint, Verizon, and T-Mobile. And uh, otherwise, we would have never seen it. And this this uh, stadium had about 4,200 seats, uh, 28 acres of land, 16. Um, 16 buildings, 48,000 square feet of buildings, uh, 18 luxury boxes, parking for a couple of thousand cars. Um, you know, it's a, a, a kind of a nice asset. It was originally built in 1993 for $11.5 million. Now, they were the home of the New Jersey Cardinals and then the Sussex Skyhawks, and they set major uh, attendance records in, in minor league ball. I guess there's not that wow. much going on in that part of uh, New Jersey, so people go out and see lots of minor league ball. Now, the, the husband died, 
and uh, they lost their minor league team. And uh, so now, now the wife is holding an asset that's bleeding cash. She knows nothing about baseball, and she just wants to move to Florida to be close to her kids. So they put it on the MLS. Uh, the realtor folded his arms and waited. Yeah. Uh, and that's not how you market a baseball stadium. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we uh, we we uh, we saw the history that they had a, a financed offer at a million eight, which they accepted and the financing fell through. Then they had an offer at a million five cash, which they rejected. Now they're two years into it, still bleeding cash. So we offered them 950 cash, which they accepted, hmm. uh, and we dis we did some math and discovered that the breakup value of the asset was far more than what we were uh, paying for it. So on closing day, uh, we sold the cell tower for $700,000 oh cash, got our basis on the stadium down to 250000 Now it goes, gets better. So in the 90 or 120 days between getting it under contract and closing, we realized we weren't in the business of owning baseball stadiums and that we would ultimately want to sell this to someone who really understood baseball. So we started talking to former major league players, you know, do you want to do a spring training camp oh, or you know, you know, any kind, all kinds of different crazy ideas. Anyway, we found a guy who owned a, a couple of other stadiums and he was looking to restart the Can-Am League. Uh, and he said, well, I may want to buy it, but I need eight stadiums in total to have a league. So you're one eighth of my problem. I'll let you know. Huh. And we said, okay, um, how would, would you like uh, an option or a right of first refusal on the stadium so that we don't sell it to somebody else? He said, yeah, good idea. Uh, what would you want for that uh, right of first refusal? We said, how about 250000 <laughs> <laughs> So... So he said, sure, but he wanted interest. And we said, okay, how much interest? He said, 8%. We said, done. So for the cost of 8% of $250,000, we bought a major league or a minor league stadium. So, so just to be clear, so he gives you this 250 and then yep. you're going to pay 8% back every year on that. Correct. That's brilliant. Correct. So we essentially, you know, we got this... This this stadium that originally cost eleven and a half million to build for the for eight percent of two hundred fifty grand. Now we held the stadium for about six months. Remember, we sold the cell tower, so our basis on the stadium was two fifty. Um, we put you know maybe another eighty thousand into it. We got a college team to play a few games and uh, that kind of stuff. And we, we eventually sold it um, about six months later for eight hundred thousand. Uh, so we made a decent profit on it uh, and very little cash into it. Um, so there were other moving parts, but for the for the sake of you know today's discussion, that's that's the essence of it. That was the essence of the deal. Uh, and I never would have imagined that you could go out and find assets for literally you know two to three cents on the dollar. Right. And 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 but they are out there. You just need to look. Um, well, and, I mean, know, that broker should not be a broker. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. that's absolutely a deal he could have put together himself or she. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I talk to people about raising capital, you know, if there's a great deal out there, the money you'll find the money. A lot of times people say, I can't find the money, I can't find the money. If you have a good enough deal, you'll find the money. Um, you know, any monkey could raise the money for that. You don't have to be a genius. <laughs> well, okay, so you mentioned you have one other creative deal. Well, one of the things, and this is maybe more a little bit more mainstream. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that we do, I, 
I'm a big believer, especially in today's marketplace, that there are very few things out there with a flashing red light on them saying, I'm a deal, come get me. Right. Uh, you know, the, you know, if there's any multi-unit complex goes on the market, there's typically 15 to 20 offers. Uh, I never want to be the winning bidder in that scenario because I'll be paying too much. Uh, so my belief is I'd rather not find deals, I'd rather create them. Right. Uh, because then I'm in control. So, you know, one of the strategies that we use very frequently is, is a strategy that I call buy on the line, move the line. And the line that I'm talking about is that line between, you know, a very hot neighborhood and the hood. Uh, and every city in America has that. You know, buy on you the can line imagine. And move the line. Got it. Right? Yeah. And what we do is we just buy right on the wrong side of that line. We redevelop that property to the standard of the hot neighborhood. And now you've moved the line. It's on the other side of your property. Uh, now, you got to put a little scale behind it. You can't do one or two because the market won't notice. You do five or ten, and the market says, oh, okay, I get it. The line has moved. That's that's a brilliant idea. Right. So we're, we're essentially, you know, in that type of scenario, you can often buy uh, what amounts to raw land or land with a structure on it that needs to be demolished for, you know, 10 to 20 cents on the dollar. Uh, redevelop that. Um, you're buying the land at a good price. You redevelop it, develop product for the expanding neighborhood. And now you can get valuations, you know, approaching 90, 95 cents on uh, compared with the hot neighborhood. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, so what, when we do that, it, it, the value creation is enormous. So just, you know, very simple example. It, you know, if I build uh, a property that is going to, let's say, value at $2 million dollars, uh, I want to cap my investment at somewhere around a million four. I want to be at 70% of the final appraised value so that when I do that, I can refinance the property at 70 or 75% loan to value, recoup 100% of the investment, mm -hmm. holding a no, ca a, no, uh, a no money down deal at that point that's generating decent cash flow with a relatively conservative debt to equity ratio. That's that's our formula. That's what we do today. And it doesn't matter whether it's a 10-unit building or larger or a 200-unit complex. That's our, that's our formula. That's terrific. So um, I, I know that a lot of people listening, you, you mentioned that capital is easy to find, but there are some steps involved. So so maybe you could tell us, uh, and you've actually written a book about this, so maybe you could talk, talk to us about, you know, in a deal like that or even a more conventional deal. What are some some keys to success for raising the capital? What, there's a few obstacles that I, you know, especially if you're new at raising money, that you need to overcome. Uh, the first one is just the mental game of I'm out there asking for money, and and I would suggest that you should never ask for money. I never ask for money. What I do instead is I offer people the opportunity to collaborate with me on a project, and that's a very different posture. Uh, and when raising money is easy, in my experience, there are five principles that you need to meet. And if you hit all five of those, raising money is very, very easy. And if you've got one or more of those that are missing, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. And so I'll, I'll go through those five principles. And I uncovered this from raising money in technology. Uh, and, uh, and I wrote it down. I wrote it down on one sheet of paper, and I kept it by my side for years uh, until my business coach about a year ago said, Victor, you've got a book in there. And uh, he kind of pushed me to write Magnetic Capital. So I did. And so, uh, you know, if you want to, if listeners want to learn more about this, then they should definitely get Magnetic Capital. But I'll go through the five, the five principles here. So number one, you've got to have relationship. 
very few people will part with hundreds of thousands of their hard-earned cash with folks they don't know. Right. Um, number two, you have to understand that complex psychological contract of trust. And it's more than just, is this an honest person? You've got to have alignment of intention. You've got to have, um, you've got to answer a whole bunch of smaller questions like, can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute it? Can I trust you to hire the right team? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? And on and on and on. There's a whole bunch of these. And uh, they all kind of have to be there for that trust to exist. Element number three is results. Show me your track record. Show me you know how to be successful. Uh, that goes a long way. It's, it's a subset of trust, uh, but it's important enough that it merits its own category. And you might be saying, well, I don't have a track record. How am I going to raise any money? The thing to remember is this is not like your grade three math test where if you look on your neighbor's paper, you're cheating. Business right. is a team sport. You've got to, um, you know, if you don't have that experience, then go work with somebody or partner with somebody who does. And it doesn't have to be for 10 years. It can be for a shorter time period. And now you can legitimately borrow from some of their credibility because you've earned it. Number four, you got to have a compelling opportunity. And, you know, one of the things that I often see people say is, you know, I had a great deal, but I couldn't get it funded. Well, there's sometimes a clue in that. Right. If, you know, if it was such a great deal, you would have probably found the money. Unless one of the other elements was missing, uh, the money would have appeared if it was really that compelling. You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, I got something 20 percent off. I kind of shrug my shoulders and say, who cares? Right. Um, you know, 20 percent off a an overvalued price. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's really got to be that compelling opportunity. And hopefully I've given a, you know, a couple of examples that illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, and then the last element, and this is maybe the most important is what I call alignment. And this is, this is analogous to a fit between you and a pair of shoes. Uh, because, you know, money has an agenda and if the if the goals for the money and the goals for the project don't match, it's not going to fit. It's just like a, buying a pair of shoes that may be beautiful, they may be on sale, but if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. So do you mean in the sense of maybe maybe one investor might be looking for steady cash flow while another is exactly. looking for upside equity? Exactly. And, and under the alignment criteria, there's about eight or nine little sub-criteria. For example, what's the size of the investment? What's the term of the investment? What's the risk? What's the security? What's the tax consequence? What's the control structure? Uh, the more sophisticated the money you're dealing with, they're going to be much more precise on what their investing criteria are. Um, very often when you're dealing with an unsophisticated investor, ask them what their goal is for their money. They'll say, well, I want to make money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know? um, but, but more sophisticated investors are very clear on what they're looking for. You know, their definition of beauty might be a medical office building, and that's all they look at. Uh, for another guy, it might be uh, self-storage or industrial. Everyone who is a, a serious investor will have their formula, and it's not enough for it just to be a good deal and for them to have cash in the bank for them to invest. Yeah, that, that's a really important point. And I think also, going back to what I wrote down was contract of trust, um, there's so much that there, – there's so much sort of unspoken communication – that can happen merely by having your act together. Yeah. Right. Presenting a, a clean looking deal packet, 
Um, when someone comes to you and says, I might be interested in investing, being able to lay out, well, this is this deal is, is best for this kind of investor. Are you one of those? Um, just sort of showing that you, you know, that you're on top of things and and understand where it is you're trying to go and how you're going to get there. Exactly. And, and the other the other side of that is due diligence as well. You know, oftentimes you'll have an investor that comes to you with a with a list of due diligence questions. And when they do, I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, but I, I will often uh, turn that around and say, look, here is what we're doing from a due diligence perspective. Happy for you to be involved as deep in due diligence as you want. Um, here, you know, full transparency on what we've done. If there are questions, if you want to augment our list of due diligence questions, feel free to do so. Uh, but first and foremost, I consider the due diligence to be my responsibility. Now, you can perform due diligence on me, and that's perfectly fair. But as far as due diligence on the deal is concerned, that's my responsibility, and I feel like I own it. And I'm happy for you to be a participant, but uh, but I won't um, I, I won't let go of that responsibility because as the principal of the project, it's mine. Um, right, and you don't want too many cooks in there. Right. Uh, I mean, because I've seen it myself. Just uh, when too many people get involved in a transaction, it ends up bogging it down. It can do, and you know the other. You know, um, Stephen Covey's son um, uh, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust, and there's a clue in the title, which is that when trust exists, decisions happen quickly. Mm-hmm. And when that trust is absent, you know, if a funding partner says, well, I'm going to need another two, three weeks to do due diligence, that's a clear indication that that trust hasn't been established yet, and there's work to be done in that area. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if someone nope. wants to do more, that's fine. Yep. Um but if, if, if they do do that, and in the end they do like you, that's a really good sign for the future. Correct. Um, well, this has been terrific. Um, so your book, again, is called Magnetic Capital. Yes. And um, you also have um, – well, well, let's just go this way. How can people find you online? Well, uh, they can uh, find me uh, at my website at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. So okay. easy to easy to spell. And they can order the book directly from the website. If they order from the website, they'll get an autographed copy. If wow. they order it from Amazon, they may get a little bit faster, but it won't be signed. And uh, if they go to, to my website, I'm offering your listeners a free magnetism scorecard. And what the magnetism scorecard will do is help you identify how you're doing against those five principles. If you're evaluating a deal, if you're evaluating a funding partner relationship, you can look and see how you're doing against each of those five criteria, and you can see where the gaps are, what you got to go work on, in order to, uh, you know, achieve a, a passing grade. And a passing grade is not 50% like it might have been in, in elementary school. Uh, you've got to get high marks in each of the areas, um, because if there's any element that's missing, like I said, it's going to be hard. That is terrific. I mean, so much of. Uh uh, of capital raising is about the, the the things you need, you know, the deal packet, the numbers. But I really like that you sort of focus on some higher order aspects of it, so that you know you're really you're really aware of what what might be missing, and you know it's not just we need uh, more pictures of the property or you know uh, better better performance, but you know, all these other aspects that go into making someone trust you and want to work with you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we really appreciate your coming on, Victor. This is, this is uh, excellent advice. It's very actionable. And I know that I'm going to go get the 
magnetic scorecard as soon as we get off get off the air. Awesome, awesome. Well, DJ, been uh, great talking with you. And if uh, listeners want to reach out to me directly and uh, they have any questions, I'm happy to chat with people. They can reach me directly at victor at victorjm.com. Thanks for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. If you got value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, think outside the box. Thank <laughs> you.